Totally Football Show. Today, with a fistful of notes from the Euro exchanges, from England cancelling checks and enjoying strong sterling, to Scotland on their travels, astonishingly bad in Astana. Plus, hair regeneration scheme, Germany are back. 36 weeks of hurt, never stopped them dreaming. All that plus nine below for Birmingham, why Argentina are crap, and your Twitter questions in this Totally Football Show in association with Paddy Power. Welcome, listener, to another Totally Football show, and welcome, Jack Lang. Hi, James. Hi, Jack. You've had a busy international weekend? Busy enough in front of the television, yeah. I see. Daniel Story, you've actually been there at the coalface of football journalism. And Wembley, yes. Yes. Also, the BBC Breakfast Sofa. Yes. Uh, yeah, the rooftop oh. at BBC New Broadcasting House, oh. where Carol does the weather. Oh, yeah. Were you on the roof? I was. Were you doing the weather? I was not. Okay, we'll hear more. <laughs> Sounds intriguing though, eh, listener? <laughs> My, Michael Cox is here with us as well, Michael. Hi, James. There's a lot for us to break down from a weekend that challenged, I think, a lot of people's preconceptions. Yeah, I thought it was an enjoyable international weekend. Mm. I watched uh, three games and they were all very good. What did you? Which ones did you watch? I watched uh, England. Check. I watched uh, Germany against Holland. Yeah. Uh, and also watched, uh, on delay, I watched Northern Ireland's game against Belarus. Did you? Yeah. Right, okay. Interesting, interesting. All right, well, I'll tell you what, listen, let's have a, a, a romp through it all then. And we may as well begin with everybody's favourite side, England. Tonight they're going to be facing Montenegro in, Daniel? Podgorica. Right. Uh, where they've, Have England drawn their last two visits there? They've had three over there, four games against Montenegro. Is that draws. right? Yes. But this England side arrived fresh from that mighty 5-0 thumping of the Czechs. And Daniel, you were there at Wembley. Yeah, it felt a really uh, positive atmosphere. Qualifiers have normally been pretty dreary. In fact, even the last qualifying campaign was um, for the World Cup was pretty dreary. Uh, I suspect it will very quickly become formulaic, but it was a really, really good atmosphere at Wembley. Um, we're kind of still waiting for the after the Lord Mayor's show syndrome to kick in after the World Cup, but the Nations League took that on really timely for Southgate. And we did it again because he's... Him, him bringing in young players and giving new players a chance freshens things up, and they are all taking their chances. Absolutely, and what a team! The way they're playing, so fabulous. That opening goal. How many passes were there in that one, then, Michael? Many. I wasn't counting. Was it, but, I think uh, ten out. All I think nine of the ten out for the players touched the ball. Right. I think twenty-five. Well, I like the way it ended because I think it showed what those front three were all very good at. Kane with that kind of round-the-corner pass that he's done a lot for Tottenham. Sancho with his assist and his assist figures are incredible this season. And Sterling with a kind of classic Manchester City far post open mm. goal finish. So, yeah, they combined really well. Hudson Odoi picking up rave reviews as well for his appearance. What, what, what impressed? What impressed you, Jack? I think Sterling in particular. Obviously, we talk about the three goals, and it's telling that this is already his best goal scoring year for England, and he's only played one game. So, I think his previous record in a whole year was two. Done that already, and I think he looks so much more comfortable on the left. I see why Southgate tried him off Kane more centrally in the summer. don't think it quite worked. He never looked quite comfortable there. I think restored to a wide position where he can drift inside brings the best out of him. And I think it's really telling the kind of comments you've seen in the press uh, before and after the game from his young teammates, uh, Callum Hudson-Odoi, Jadon Sancho, saying how much of a father figure he already is to the team. Only 24, you know, a leader on the pitch and off it as well. He, these guys have said he's brought them into the fold really quickly, made them feel at home. And that, I think, is 
symbolic of what Southgate has done to this team and that players who are still young, still really improving, I suppose. Mm. Kane is, you know, you could argue that he's still got something to give. Sterling, I think, could still reach higher levels. But these guys are setting the standard. And yeah, I think it's the feel-good atmosphere around the team is fully justified. All right. When you looked around the press box, Daniel, I mean, it, it was such a great performance by England that it seems almost churlish to pick out a negative. But when you look around, do you, do you think, my word, there's a lot of people eating eating their words here on the subject of Raheem Sterling? Possibly. I, I think most individuals I would speak to... Um, consider the treatment that he accused to be and the criticism that he gave out to be absolutely bob on I don't know if uh, it changes individuals I don't think that was ever Sterling's issue it was never about naming individuals it was about a general uh, subconscious bias against against how black players are treated in the media right um, which and I Danny that, Rose also cites exactly well. right yeah. and it was it was interesting to hear Danny Rose say we chat about this openly in the dressing room mm. which is it, it, shaming for them for that elements of the media um, I don't think that will change overnight and nor should it change just because Sterling is playing well that's not the point uh, the point is that a shift in mood needs to happen in part by bringing in diversity into the media mm. um, part of the reason that people get things wrong is because they have no experience of other cultures than their own right the headlines then were all for uh, Sterling and of, of course Hudson Adore and Sancho as well who though who else does, is, is, deserves the plaudits Michael Oh, you've curled a lip. Was it really just yeah. them? Well, I thought the Czech Republic were really limited. Right. And I'm not looking to take anything away from England, but I just didn't think it was much of a test. And as soon as they got the second hole just before half-time, it was kind of a bit of a, a bit of an exhibition, a bit of a friendly game. That's not to take anything away from them, but I'm not sure it's a game where we learned too much about anyone aside from the front three combining, really. Oh, OK, fair I, I think the one interesting thing to come from it is... Eric Dyer going off injured could be a real blow to mm-hmm. his international future, really, because it wasn't Declan Rice that came on, but I think Rice might well start tonight. And you wonder then whether Dyer will, will get his way back into the team because he hasn't been playing that well at club level um, over the last year or so. I think when he did come on at the World Cup, he often looked really uncomfortable. Um, I like him. I think he's a good player, Dyer, and his ability to play in defence and midfield means I think he'll always be part of the squad. But in terms of his international future, you, you slightly fear for him. It's also got... Harry Winks at club level, who Southgate clearly likes, was not in the squad for kind of lingering fitness issues. But if Rice is going to play that central midfielder who has he has experience of going back into defence, and that kill, that kind of kills Dyer there, and Winks is a kind of passing central midfielder, which kills him there. So he's he's a bit stuck. And just while I mentioned Czech Republic and and the fact that they were quite limited, it's worth pointing out that this. Uh, was the second seed. So that is theoretically the hardest team that England will come across and they were actually the lowest ranked team in the second pot. So it sums up how well England did with that draw when you consider they were in the same pot as Germany. Mm. I know Germany have struggled, but I mean, that was not a, a serious test really. All right. Well, tonight then, Montenegro, the only game left to Gareth Southgate to prepare his England side for the Nations League in June, uh, which will be opening up against the Dutch. Are, are England ready? Are there any issues still to be resolved? I, I, th- I think there probably is a question mark um, in terms of if, if we're going to go for a four now at the back, I think there are questions at right back. Walker, I thought, was pretty good against a limited Czech team, but um, Kieran Trippier obviously started there in the summer and is struggling. We've got this weird scenario where we've got arguably four of the best 
maybe 10 to 15 right backs in Europe at the moment pushing through with Trent Alexander-Arnold and Aaron Wan-Bissaka so I think there's a question there because there is still clearly a bit of time for players to push on into that squad but Mm. these are all cliched good problems to have I think yeah I would say perhaps centre-back as well Michael Keane is not a player that always convinces me I think John Stones obviously will take his place back and Joe Gomez in the interim, while those two are out, I think we look a little bit like there. But as Daniel said, the number of options that can still come into this team, we think about the guys who weren't there, Rashford, uh, Gomez, Alexander-Arnold, Stones, Lingard, Oxlade-Chamberlain. The number of options Southgate has, I think, is greater than probably any England team I can remember from All the right. and And comparable with any team in the world right now in terms of squad depth? You know what? Yeah, it's, pro- it's probably up there. OK. Well, speaking of Netherlands who England will be facing in Portugal. Sunday night, they had what was billed as the game of the weekend against their old rivals, Germany. They very much lived up to expectations. We'll be talking about that after this. You're listening to The Totally Football Show in association with Paddy Power. Duitsland scored! A treffer van Notenbeden, die linkervleugelverdediger. Schultz, Nico Schultz van Hoffenheim. Nico Schultz there capping off Germany's triumphant 3-2 performance against the Netherlands in Amsterdam. Johnny Blaine pointing out Germany scoring three or more goals away to the Netherlands for the first time since 1966. As Tom Williams tweets, well, Germany being rubbish was fun while it lasted. Because... They really weren't, were they? I think both teams had periods of being rubbish, oh, <laughs> which, really? which is what made it so fun. It was a the classic game of two halves that Germany kind of spoiled by then getting the the last minute winner at the end of a half where they'd been dominated for long periods. You say it was kind of billed as the game of the weekend. It might be the best game I've seen all season, actually. Yeah. It was just brilliant. There was such a great rhythm to the game. I think there was a really good goal scoring chance after about ninety seconds, and then the winner was in the eighty ninth minute. So it just was non stop action. And just the the commitment to playing technical football, I thought, was excellent. There was some kind of quite hard tackles that the referee let the game flow, which I was surprised about because it was a Spanish referee, and I think they're often quite whistle happy compared to uh, some other referees from countries. But it was it was absolutely excellent. Was this a triumph for the under fire Yugi Love, or just an example of how badly he got his squad selection wrong for the World Cup? Well, a little bit of both. I think there's still a question about uh, Sané and why he wasn't picked, although. You go back to the friendlies before the tournament, he didn't look right. But he was excellent. I mean, Germany played without a conventional striker. They played two up front, which was Sané and Nabry, who are both wide players. And Sané's movement, I'm not sure I've really seen him play up front before, but his movement across the line was absolutely excellent. Nabry, uh, so Sané scored the first goal. Nabry, I think, was quieter, but scored a fantastic second goal. And I think you have to give low credit because... When this team sheet was released, I couldn't work out what system they were playing. But the first half, they were excellent. And then Komen made changes. And the Dutch were rampant at the start of the second half. And, and overall, probably created the better chances. In, in kind of narrative terms, it was, a, it was obviously a massive win for, for Lerv after dropping the, you know, dropping the Bayern players and that becoming the headline of his squad. I think if, he, if they had conceded a two-goal lead and drawn 2-2, then he would have probably come out of the game with a negative, even though they played really well in the first half and, and the changes he made were actually pretty good. Um, but yeah, I'm not sure about in terms of performance, whether it means you know Germany are back or whatever, but certainly in terms of that kind of owning the mood of the national media, I think that late goal is absolutely huge for Love. All right. 
that Nabry goal was pretty amazing as well. Mm. Taking Virgil van Dijk for a stroll across the pitch. Yeah, the commentators on on Sky were really laying into Van Dijk for that about his casual running over to the ball, and to some extent, you can understand that Van Dijk does defend in a way that he finds it easy and he makes it look easy. But you had to think that he still, by the time he pushed Gnabry wide there, the percentages were really on his side. So, you know, laid back or not, he had pushed Gnabry into a, into a space in which I'm sure, you know, he's going to score that shot one in 30 times, something like that. The fact that he pulled it out of the bag was majestic and Nabry hit really hit the ground running for Germany since he's come into the side. Worth remembering, of course, not just that he was one that slipped through Arsenal's fingers, but he could hardly get a game on loan for West Brom uh, three seasons ago. And just an example of the the depth of talent that Germany have, that someone can come in pretty much fresh into the national team, make a massive impact like that. thought he was excellent. By the way, uh, Virgil van Dijk, or <laughs> van Dijk, as I think uh, Simon Cooper was uh, called him, but uh, Michael, Michael Jongsma has been on the phone to say that actually it's Virgil, it's pronounced the English way. Oh. So uh, pff, that one's going to run and run. <laughs> uh, but anyway, as for the Netherlands, you know, more broadly speaking, Nick Miller saying without wishing to be too Anglo-centric, England should hose these in the Nations League. What the Nations League does do for England is if they win in Montenegro on Monday night, that is the group done because they are the two two of the hardest fixtures we should face. Uh, we'll win the group. So the Nations League is a really timely chance for Southgate to, you know, often in international football until the Nations League started, get a chance to play a number of two or three games over a, a short period of time against big countries. You know, Even in a World Cup scenario or last year, England didn't play a really good team until... Well, basically until the semi-finals so he's got a real chance to test themselves we should be there's no reason to fear the Netherlands absolutely not I'm not sure about hose them so 3-2 for Germany Sunday night the team that's actually topping that group though is Northern Ireland who got their first win in eight against Estonia 2-0 and then promptly followed that with another one beating Belarus 2-1 which you were watching Michael yeah, I, I quite like watching Northern Ireland. They're, mm-hmm. they're always a really good, well-organised unit. I think Michael O'Neill's done a fantastic job with them. They've got a good chance, I think, of causing problems in this group. The, the fixture list for them is slightly strange because they've got their first four games against Belarus, Estonia, Belarus, Estonia, and then the last four against Holland and Germany. So you think that they need to <laughs> need to make a good start, and they have done. And uh, it was a, a late victory. Okay. But they did put on a lot of pressure in the last 20, 25 minutes. I think probably merited the the victory if the big two in the group can just take points off each other enough yes potentially um i mean you, you think they'll probably end up in uh, a playoff slot but right. uh yeah well it's not bad um jack ireland also won in mick mccarthy's uh, return to the uh, ireland bench they did it was not especially pretty in any way uh, in fact one of the big highlights of the game was an easy jet plane coming into land over the pitch. Oh, really? In Gibraltar. Yeah, Mick McCarthy said afterwards uh, it was bloody horrible. He was asked if he enjoyed it and he said not one effing bit. And I, <laughs> and I think uh, Mick McCarthy is obviously great value, but I think that's a, a fair assessment. It was grim, gritty. They eventually found a way through, but not before Darren Randolph pulled off a spectacular save just yeah. before the goal. And there was also a really good save from the Gibraltar goalkeeper mm. to prevent an own goal. One of the best saves I've seen for a long time. Really, really, he was pumped about it. Really pumped, rightly so, because yeah. the ball was basically past him by the time he basically clawed it away from behind his head, uh, just over the bar. One of the 
just a spectacular save that's worth looking up. It's a word for Gibraltar, who they obviously, well, they came, they hit the international scene in 2013, and I think Drew with Slovakia in the first game. That was and the kind was, of Higginbotham golden generation. Exactly, <laughs> exactly. And then they went on a run where they lost, I think they, they lost... Well, they drew one and lost 17 in the next 18 games. I think they conceded about 100 goals. Um, but they've got a new manager, Uruguayan Ribas. Uh, and they've won like... Well, they, they, they beat Armenia 3-0 away in the Nations League mm. campaign. They had a chance of qualifying for the, for the of winning their group in the Nations League with two games to go and then kind of fell apart. But I don't think those results... They will get heavily beaten by the best. But I don't think those results, like the 1-0s and 2-1s against slightly lower-ranked nations, are that surprising. I think they will be hard to beat because they're incredibly well organised and they're improving all the time. And now they're actually playing at home as well. I mean, yeah. b- before they weren't allowed to play at this stadium because the facilities weren't up to scratch. Oh, right. So they were playing in the... Obviously, they can't play in Spain for obvious reasons. So they were playing in the south of Portugal, which was about four hours' drive, I think. Right. So they weren't really playing home games. I actually went to this stadium a couple of years ago. It's great. You can you land at the airport and can walk to the ground. That's brilliant. It's literally the first thing you come across as you go into the... To be fair, if it's border. in Gibraltar, you're not going to have to travel too far. No, certainly not, but it's it's literally right next to the airport. That's, that's it, it's amazing. quite a bizarre situation where you kind of land on the Spanish side mm. and then there's a road from that into Gibraltar, but they shut this road when a plane comes into land. It's kind of like a level crossing for, right. for airplanes. It's exciting. And you can also overlook the pitch from the top of the rock. Is it the only uh, ground? Yes, so their Premier League has 10 teams. And they all use And they ground. all play that, just five games back to back. I doubt Ireland will... F- be the last team to find that the rock is a hard place to go nice someone did send an excellent tweet which is stuck between a rock and an air airspace an airspace yeah That's which nice. now i understand because it refers yes. to the yeah the proximity to, to to the runway i liked it the person sent the tweet twice which made it sound <laughs> like no one would reply to him so he said i'm gonna send it again because it's such a good joke uh, Ireland will be hosting Georgia in Dublin on Tuesday. Georgia kicked their qualifying campaign off by getting beat by the Swiss. Meantime, Ireland have waved bye-bye, but not entirely, to John Delaney, which <laughs> uh, he's been the kind of boogeyman for Irish supporters for so long. Mm. I know he's still there as executive vice president, but this is this is a good day for Irish football. By the sound of it, it was the only way that they were able, politically, were able to move him aside from a position of greater power was to put him in this kind of quasi role. Um, I don't know if that's for a short period of time until they can kind of bundle him out of side door or what. But yes, it is a good thing for Irish football fans. All right. I'm interested to know if they're still paying his rent of €3,000 a month, which I'm sure that buys you some pretty nice real estate. (laughs) Indeed. Lots of other things to talk about from the internationals, including the goal of the weekend, the miss of the weekend, all that stuff coming up after this. Hi, I'm Rodri Giggs. You probably know me for being related to a famous sports star. That's right, my dad did play rugby for Wales. I've always lived a loyal life, always use the same brand of tea bags, I always drink in the same pub, and always support my country. Questions will be asked. You see, loyalty gets you nowhere. Live for rewards instead. That's why I'm Paddy's Rewards Club ambassador. Paddy Powers Rewards Club. Loyalty's dead. Live for rewards. Season season by 18plusbigambleware.org. On Spotify, smart speaker and podcast platforms everywhere, this is the Totally Football Show from Muddy Knees Media. Hello, Wales. Your boys beat Slovakia 1-0 and you got very excited about Daniel James. With the early goal, goal there in Cardiff, Jack. Yeah, uh, very exciting young team. 
Ryan Giggs is putting together there. I like the fact that he's starting to phase out the old generation. Uh, you know, Neil Taylor, Chris Gunter, Ashley Williams was left out of this one. And you look at the attacking talents, especially they have the, you know, Daniel James, David Brooks, Harry Wilson. There's real talent there, and they've still got Ethan Ampadu was out for this one to come back in. Aaron Ramsey was out. They were holding on a bit at times in this. It wasn't especially impressive. But if Giggs can get those youngsters to click on a regular basis, I think this Wales team has a very, very bright future. Okay. And also, with all sorts of glorious prospects in front of them, Scotland, who had that 2 0 win at San Marino. Here's the crowd celebrating at the final whistle. What's your reaction? Scotland supporters not impressed with what they have seen this evening. Oh, the crowd <laughs> not very happy there. 2 0. Not a particularly reassuring scoreline after what was described as a nervy performance by Alec McLeish. And especially, I think, the crowd with some ill feeling uh, after the uh, Thursday's performance when they went to Kazakhstan and lost 3-0. Mm. Going two goals behind in the first 10 minutes. Kazakhstan ranked 117th in the world. And, and, and the ire of Scottish supporters... Uh, only increased them by Russia subsequently going to whatever Astana is now called and winning 4 0. Wow. Uh, it was meant to be a Scotland squad that was going to take them to or return them back up where they belong. So, how are people feeling north of the border? We caught up with Laura Brennan from the Totally Scottish Football Show for her thoughts. Well, in about, what, two decades of supporting Scotland, I can't think of a worse display, a worse performance, a worse result than the game against Kazakhstan. It was humiliating from everything from start to finish, from the the performance, from the lack of passion, lack of desire. It was so humiliating. And you think as a Scotland fan, it can't get any worse. They just keep on surprising you. It, it does. And it's almost a joke now. Laura, McLeish's appointment was extremely unpopular when it was made. Of course, he has to take responsibility for this result. But the players do too, not just the ones on the pitch, but the ones who weren't there. Andrew Robertson, who went to the dentist, uh, a number of players who didn't want to play in Kazakhstan, and also a number of players who just don't want to play for McLeish anymore. What are your feelings on all of that? Um, this is a, a huge qualifier at the, high, at the pinnacle of your career for your national country Ryan Fraser and Calm Patterson missed out because it's partly in their club contracts that they can't play on plastic but then there's also Andy Robertson so he had this abscess his appointment got delayed at the dentist but it was a medical team who advised him not to apply separately after the operation to Kazakhstan that one, I guess, is unfortunate. Um, so he's shown his commitment in that sense. And I, I'm no doctor. I don't know what it takes for an abscess to clear up post-operation. But as a fan, I like seeing that my captain is at least dedicated in that sense, put in that effort. And it's not himself that's choosing not to play. McLeish is also saying in press conferences he's not picking players like Stephen Fletcher and Tom Kearney because of injury. And then the following day, you're seeing these players playing for their clubs, scoring for their clubs. And you're thinking, well, they're clearly not injured, so why are they not getting picked? There's a lot of question marks over a lot of different aspects of the squad right now. We'll have more reaction from Laura, JJ Bull and Andrew Slaven in the Totally Scottish Football Show, which should be with you on Tuesday morning. Elsewhere in the Euros, Jack, reigning champions Portugal got their campaign underway. How? Goalless draw against the Ukraine. Good knowledge. They'll be hosting Serbia probably right now, listener. Tell you what, uh, Piatov made a couple of fantastic saves in that Did game. He? It was basically Ronaldo against Piatov, Oof. and uh, I was a little bit surprised to see he was still around. It seems Piatov. like, yeah, it seems like he's been playing for about fifteen years for the national side. But two really outstanding saves. Okay, reigning world champions France did what against Moldova? 
Four nil? For one. For one. Mm. Including did you see that? <laughs> <laughs> the goal of the weekend. That incredible Pogba to Griezmann volley thing. Yeah, that was a great great pass more than anything, wasn't it? I mean, a good finish. But the finish but as well. The pass, I thought, made that goal. The pass was really good. And that's what's, why it's so special. Both elements. I like, a, I like that finish that he's got pretty much the whole goal to aim at, but just going directly over the keeper's head. Yeah. Love that. Yeah. Anton Griezmann with the finish. Mbappé also scored. Giroud scored. Varane scored, but there was a Moldovan goal. Anyway, if that was goal of the weekend, miss of the weekend, meanwhile, Daniel came in Spain, Norway. Yeah, Elianusi with a wretched, wretched, wretched finish. So there's a cross from, I'm going to hold my hands up and say, I'm not sure, but a Norwegian player puts the ball in and he's, he's there in front of the goal and he connects, but somehow sends it backwards. I was uh, intrigued by the Ramos penalty. Hmm. I'm not sure that's a Penenka. Okay. I think a Penenka has to dip, you know, has to arc down and come into the... Oh, so this was still rising when it reached the net? Yeah, it was kind of just side-footed into the top of the net. I'm not sure that's a Penenka, personally, but people can make their own minds up. I've got a bone to pick with the goalkeepers of Europe. Okay. Because Ramos knocking penalties down the middle, Penenka or not, according to Michael's definition, Mm. is the most predictable thing in the European game at the moment. That's the fifth time he's done it this season. I'm sure, but he does it every time, and yet goalkeepers continue to dive. Just mm. you know, you're making this man's life very easy. Someone yeah. was saying, I think someone was saying, basically, uh, it might have been Ben Littleton, the the penalty kick expert. But anyway, someone was saying that percentage-wise, it is worth staying in the middle every single time for the amount of penalties that are now hit down the middle. But it's just kind of that psychology of well, if I if it goes in the corner, I haven't dived. It looks like I've not even tried. Yeah. That means they do dive, but they shouldn't. Can you imagine the joy of grabbing a chip down the middle penalty multiplied by the Ramos factor? Oh, yeah. That would be instant hero status, and it's it's waiting there for someone. All right. Well, as it was, he did score, and as a result, Spain did get a winning start. 2-1 over Norway, who got their goal through Josh King. Italy beat Finland 2-0. Uh, a remarkable scoreline, firstly, because uh, Moise Kane scored his first goal for Italy at the age of 19 and 19 years and I think 26 days or something like that. And also because only once in the previous 16 international matches had Italy managed to score more than a single goal. Really? Yeah. Wow. Going back to 2017. And the only time they'd, they'd done that in the previous uh, 16 was against Saudi Arabia. Okay. And even that scoreline was only 2-1. <laughs> so, yeah. Interesting on Italy, their last 15 goals have been scored by 15 different players. Oh, which is quite good. I, I watched a bit of this. I thought it was a pretty impressive performance. It wasn't bad, was it? That, and that, I think, you know, the young players especially, because the other goal from Barella is he's, what, I think 22? Yeah, he was good. The front three, I thought, yeah. well, so I'd, mobile. Immobile, the ironically title. Sure. He'd be the one I would kind of willingly excise, redact from that team sheet in, in perpetuity. Mm. And, and then Quagliarella, the opposite age of the spectrum, comes on... Came very close to scoring, didn't yeah, he? Yeah, brilliant save, and then he hits the... The frame of the goal, but yeah, there were there were positives, and I think um, I think a two nil win over Finland, they were all very happy about that. Uh, giddy heights of two goals. Uh, Austria scored two goals away in Israel, but got beaten four two. Mm. And upset of the weekend, World Cup finalist Croatia, beaten by Hungary. Yeah, it just makes me even more frustrated that England lost to Croatia because they really weren't a particularly good side. They got through the previous two games before England after extra time mm. slash penalties and. Uh, yeah, incredible achievement to, to reach the final, but 
Yeah, that was a good chance for England, wasn't it? Now, there was loads of other international football, wasn't there, Jack? There was. We'll Ooh. get on to some of that other stuff later on. Argentina, Brazil, and of course the final round of AFCON uh, qualifying for the Cup of Nations, Nations Cup. Uh, all of that to come. Next up, though, let's talk about Birmingham. You're listening to the Totally Football Show, sponsors of Melchester Rovers. Find out more at RoyTheRoversOfficial.com. If you're into your cycling or anybody else's, the new episode of the Bradley Wiggins podcast is out now, and in it, Sir Brad tells us why he's traded the pedals for the oars. I started rowing on an indoor rowing machine and then it kind of advanced to getting on water, which was just as kind of a lot of escapism and that. And just a change of identity. I got sick of being Sir Bradley Wiggins and kind of hero worshipped and all this. For 20 years, I'd just been called a hero and a legend, you know, and other things, obviously, but only behind my back. <laughs> um, but that's the problem. Not here. No, that's, that's the problem, you see. You only hear it behind your back yeah. or by someone called never to buy a real person. Go, Do you know what? I actually really like you, but I think you can be a bit of a at times or something like people don't tell you that in this, sure. in this so they only heap praise on you and that creates a lot of problems for you long term really until you if you don't get out of that you just walk around for the rest of your life entitled thinking people should know who you are thinking that that status gets you in restaurants or you get freebies this that, enough leave it all behind and move on otherwise your kids grow up idiots as well you know it's mm. just things like that I just and now it's like no you can just be normal leave it it's all right words i think we can all sympathize with bradley wiggins on the bradley wiggins podcast which is out now Amidst all the fun and games with the international football, there was some major football league news. When did this come? Friday evening? Friday, yes. When the league suddenly announced that Birmingham City, who were on the fringes of the playoff-ish, 13th, were being dot nine points, dropping them down the table to 18th, now just five points above the relegation places. Is this has enormous repercussions for, or potentially does, for the relegation race in the Championship, for Birmingham City's prospects. What's behind it all? Daniel Storey. FFP rules in the Championship or in the Football League dictate that you cannot lose more than £39 million over a rolling uh, three-year or three-season period. The issue with Birmingham, the reason they've been docked the points rather than just fined is two reasons. Firstly, because the Football League accuses, or the EFL accuses, that they knew they were going to go over and just went, Right, fine, we know we're going to go over, so let's really go over. And the second is that they were given a transfer embargo and then they proceeded to spend £2 million on uh, Christian, Christian Pedersen, yeah. uh, under-21 Danish international, and made him sign a contract, which meant that when the EFL said, well, you can't do that, you can't register him, they said, well, employment law acts over your rules, so you have to let him play. And basically the AFL were powerless and said, OK, fine, we'll let him play, but... This will factor into our judgment, and that's why they've got them points. So Birmingham City presumably weren't surprised when they were hit with what seems a, no. a pretty massive penalty. Well, the, it could have been more. Of, isn't it? Yeah, it could have been more. And there's a train of thought that says that the EFL have waited until a time and chosen a points deduction, which uh, neither it does very little. In that Birmingham, there are five places and five points above relegation. They won't right. go down. So it's kind of a, a, a slightly meaningless thing, and that they should have done it either start of next season or beginning of this season okay um but yeah i mean they are not the only ones birmingham who who the finances in the championship are enough that owners just gamble on promotion because it's worth gambling and then take the hit at the other end right well we saw qpr doing this and they got fined yeah. well i mean Wolves last season uh, lost a million pounds a week when they were getting promoted wow. but because they got promoted it's worth a gamble right okay so uh, you're only allowed to lose 39 million over a three-year period yes. which is to prevent clubs basically 
running up the debts and leaving their creditors stranded, etc. Yeah. Birmingham managed to do that pretty much in one season. Yeah, so £37 million in in. 1617 was the last one, yeah. And then effectively just kind of waved two fingers up at the at the Football League while they continued on. Yeah. And I, I love that in the mitigating factors they put, we pleaded guilty. Well, yeah, the, <laughs> the other the other amusing thing is that the Birmingham's last line of defence was, it gave us no sporting advantage, which is basically saying, not only did we break the rules, but we are so incompetent that <laughs> it didn't even help us, so let us off, which now, is great. they blame the... Ma- I mean, they literally blame their managers for this in the statement, do they not? Uh, well, Harry Redknapp, because it's Harry Redknapp, was questioned about whether it was his fault. And, you know, I'm not a huge... But didn't Harry- their defence come, come to the fact that we had to engage two managers who spend a lot of money mm. and then we had to pay them off? Yeah, and because it's Harry Redknapp, and I'm no Harry Redknapp fan, obviously everyone went, oh, Harry Redknapp spent all their money, but that's not what ownership and leadership is. That's not what management is. You know, you have, you should be able to sit above the manager and tell him no. And if you appoint Harry Redknapp and then let him spend money, that's what he's going to do. Do you think any other club's going to be hitting this fashion? Uh, yes, I think, well... Uh, <laughs> The the problem with FFP is that you are allowed to effectively write off loans from owners. So Nottingham Forest re- recorded a profit last season, but that was only because their Greek owner lent, loaned them and wrote off £40 million worth of loans because they're losing half a million a week every week. So it is murky, and I can see why fans don't like it. But it, as you say, it's to stop clubs, owners coming in, spending loads, walking away and bankrupting the club basically okay but you don't think City are in any danger they have lost their last four games and the next three I think I'm right saying a West Brom Leeds and Sheffield United who are I, all promotion chasers. yeah I think I think there are worse teams like teams like Reading and Rotherham and Wigan are worse than them okay alright back to the wide world of international football then and Jack Lang ahead of the Copa America which sports fans Gets underway the 14th of June and runs through to the 7th of July. A feast of Latin football with a bit of Qatar in Japan. Um, ahead of that, uh, how are Brazil and Argentina, the faves, getting on? Uh, not a great week for either of them, actually. Uh, Brazil drew one all with Panama. Panama, obviously, we, we saw them at the World Cup and they weren't particularly impressive there. And this is, you know, understandably being treated as a pretty embarrassing result for Brazil. Right. But the truth is they haven't played well since the World Cup this was their seventh game they'd won all of the previous six but unconvincingly haven't been playing very good football obviously Neymar's injury is a factor and uh, Vinicius Junior probably would have played here had he also not been injured Mm. but still I mean Brazil it's not like they were really knocking on the door here they they did hit the woodwork but it was just a bloodless performance Okay. The, Pacatar game. Yeah, Lucas Pacatar was mm. the uh, the one bright spot. Really, Richarlison actually played okay as well. Pacatar scored on his debut, but I think the expectation was when you saw the lineup that he would be in a central role with Felipe Coutinho going back to a, a place in the front three because I think he struggled at times during the World Cup to take on a proper midfield role. He doesn't do the defensive work very well, and he's been in poor form. But they actually changed positions, and often it was Coutinho still central, Pacata coming in from the left. Coutinho was really poor. Again, it's becoming a bit of an issue, this. And it, I think it was quite telling that Chichi left him on for 90 minutes. He was taking all these other players off and resting them. like So desperate to get his confidence up that he was leaving him on for the last 10 minutes against Panama. So, yeah, not great for Brazil. I think it's probably their, their worst moment since Chichi took over. OK. Mind uh, you, it's not nearly as bad as the moment their neighbours are having. Yeah. Argentina. Yeah, just when it, it seemed like there was... a brief bit of respite from the you know, the recriminations that we saw at the World Cup uh, Lionel Scaloni came in 
in temporary charge after the World Cup has been kept on basically because they haven't found a compelling alternative. He, I think he will still be in charge at the Copa America, but then will leave. Isn't someone with, I think this is his first coaching job as far as I know, and so he really is just jobbing, essentially. But Messi's uh, return coincided with yeah another poor performance against so Venezuela. They lost 3-1. This is in Madrid. Yeah. 3-1 against uh, Venezuela with uh, Solomon Rondon and another Martinez, Joseph Martinez. Nice penalty technique. Yeah. Uh, imagine Jorginho's penalty and then turn it up to 11. A real pronounced jump on his final yeah, step. Yeah, really. really weird. Yeah. And Venezuela is an, is an interesting story, actually. I think they're going to be uh, perhaps the story of South American qualifying in that they, they've never qualified for a World Cup. They've rarely made an impression at the Copa America. It's baseball is the national sport, essentially, but still they are... They're an underperforming team within South America, but they've got Rafael Dudamel, who was the manager of the under-20 team, mm -hmm. who were runners-up in the World Cup a couple of years ago. He's integrating a load of these younger players. They've got Rondon, they've got Joseph Martinez, and I think in their sights is a real go at the World Cup, and they will use the Copa America as a bit of a, a warm-up for that. So perhaps Argentina losing to them isn't a surprise of the proportions that we maybe imagine, but still, Argentina were, were pretty dire. All right, OK. Also forced to be reckoned with in the Copa America are Uruguay, who are busy winning the China Cup at the moment. That is that right? apparently has become an annual thing in their in their diary, just winning that. OK, because as we record, listener, they're beating Thailand. So hang on, Thailand and China and Uruguay. Uzbekistan, and Uzbekistan. is who they've beaten the semis, yeah. Oh, they've already beaten Uzbekistan. That's brilliant. Wales were in this course last year, weren't they? Yes. Yeah. I remember good. watching it whilst recording this pod. It was great. It was like Soccer Saturday. Ah, nice. Excellent. All right. Anyway, now also this summer, the Africa Cup of Nations. And it's going to feature for the first time in its history, Michael Burundi. Yep. Saida Berahino's Burundi. They're ranked 138th in the world. 24 teams, well, 23 teams will be joining them in Egypt this summer. Amongst them, another debutante, Mauritania. How about that? Anyway, other business. Omar says, can we have a special shout-out for Guyana, where my mother's family comes from? Traditionally a cricket-playing nation, they qualified for their first Gold Cup yesterday by beating Belize 2-1. Anyone on the panel with any Guyana football knowledge gets a prize, yeah. offers Omar. Go on, Jack. Uh, well, I, I spoke to Michael Johnson, the coach, a few months okay. ago. And, yeah, it's a really nice story. He obviously used to play for Birmingham, most famously, did his coaching badges in the UK, had a number of... Uh, he had a brief caretaker spell and was doing mainly youth football, getting applying for a lot of jobs, getting quite frustrated at the lack of opportunities and had really almost moved away from the idea of being a football manager, going to the administrative side, and he got a phone call from the guy on FA. He thought it was one of his former teammates winding him up. It wasn't. Eventually went out, flew out there and agreed to become the manager of this tiny, tiny little nation. But it's, yeah, there's not a real culture of football there. He said he was, uh, the size of the task sunk in when he went to his first training sessions. They didn't really have training kit. Right. So, he, you know, saw that it was going to be quite a difficult task. But he's set the target of taking them to a gold cup, which he's done. They beat Belize yesterday. And beyond that, I think he's got ambitions of he calls it Project 150, which is to get into the top 150 in the FIFA rankings. Uh -huh. Currently 177, okay. I think. And 
even well, you mentioned talk of a of the World Cup, which would obviously be a. But the rate it's expanding is in, you know entirely possible. Where do you want your prize? Just email it into the show. Right. Okay. That's magnificent. Their captain, we so, like the level we're talking about here. Their captain plays for Wealdstone. In uh, is that is that? Uh, I think the National League South. South, right? So I mean, that's the level of. uh, I mean, obviously Johnson. He's and their assistant are kind of scouting English non-league for players because it's a savvy thing to do. Um, But yeah, I mean, that's the level we're talking about. So it's some achievement. Absolutely, this is turning quite an expensive tweet (laughs) for you, Omar. (laughs) Their most famous player is is Neil Dans. Used to play for Birmingham. Now plays for Berries Thirty Six. Okay, that's that's as close to a household name as they come. Hey, here's Danny Wright who says, I turn, oh, he doesn't say how old he turned, but he had a birthday. Happy birthday, Danny, on Thursday. And he's put together a five-a-side team with manager and subs of people with the same birthday for him. Have a bang on this. Defenders, Ronald Koeman and Jordi Alba. Ooh. Central midfield, Lothar Mateus. Attackers, Antoine Griezmann and Ronald Gino. Subs, yeah. Stuart Nethercott, Lou Catamol and Ali Dai. But that's impressive. And yeah. wait till you hear who the manager is, Daniel. Only Brian Clough. Indeed. That's outstanding. Pretty unbeatable. I mean, it is a game we've been playing a little bit in recent pods. Who do you share a birthday with? Producer Ben, I recall, uh, also, you know, other people who've been born on his birthday, Peter Crouch, Arda Turan, Tom Ince, Juninho Penambucano and Dimitar Berbatov. I feel like this is a low-key attempt to get listeners to send presents in. By yeah. revealing when birthdays are. That's true. Or well, you don't actually have to say the date, but who would be... Have you looked at who would yeah, be Yeah, I've yours? got a team. I've got uh, David Seaman in goal, All right. Kieran Trippi and Russia International Mario Fernandez and an eclectic front pair of Leon Best and Sonny Anderson. That is eclectic. Mm. OK, Michael? I mean, I'm really struggling. <laughs> I, I think there's a good chance I've got the worst birthday for this, but I've got uh, Tim Visa in goal, who's now a professional wrestler, yep. so it sums up how I'm struggling there. I think I'm going to play myself a centre-back. Uh, <laughs> and I've seen you play, so you Ma- are struggling. Uh, thank you very much. Martin Odegaard would be okay. attacking midfielder. Jordan Ayew up front. The yep. fifth spot I'm really struggling for, so I've gone for David Rashida, who's the world record at 800 metres, who I just think can get up really? and down so the pitch. Really? So when is your birthday, Michael? Uh, December 17th. And is that really bad? Because I know, Daniel, you were saying that you're born at a good time of year for footballers. Yeah, I'm a, well, I'm a, well, you wouldn't know it from the team, but yeah, I'm a September birthday, and generally there's some stats that a percentage of Premier League and international footballers are born in September, October, November, because... They were basically old in their school year, so were physically stronger at younger ages and got pushed forward in teams, etc., etc. That makes sense. Whereas in December... Well, December, theoretically, should be broadly positive for that, but it's clearly not. People don't have their children around Christmas, I think is the... Understandable. Yeah, that's true. Uh, Jack, your five-a-side team? Yeah, rush goalie, unfortunately, because I haven't got one. Really? No goalkeeper's born on your birthday? None that I'd heard of. Okay. And that was a... I, unlike Michael, did restrict myself to footballers rather than track and field athletes. So we've got a rotating cast of Johnny Giles. Right. Fine. With a bit of ballast from Gary Flitcroft. Okay. And then an all-star striking lineup of Andre Scherler, Josie Outerdoor, nice. and Andre Silva. Okay. That's not too bad. I'm looking at soccer players born on my birthday... And I've got an interesting midfield. I've got Ambrosini and Di Matteo in there and Hernanes, so that's all right. That's oh, good. Classy. Uh, up front, I'm struggling a bit. 
I said, could I put Arshavin up there? He's there. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. David Mailer, headbuttings David Mailer, <laughs> is also born on my birthday, as is Tobin Heath, who I know plays for Portland, yeah. but I don't know what, what her position is. So that's my five. Listener, have you got a birthday? <laughs> <laughs> What's your favourite birthday? Do <laughs> Quote tweet. What's your yeah, birthday? Do let us know next international break. I think the only interesting one would be yeah. February 29th. Yes. Ah. And Christmas Day, maybe. You say that. Yeah. You yeah. say that it would be interesting, but let's find out. Yeah, why not? Benedict Hoovedes. Wow. Yeah. Safed Taida. Yeah. Uh, oh, Taylor Twelman. Do you remember him? Yes. Uh, that's it. Wow. Well, there's a guy called Perry Kitchen. Do you know Perry Kitchen? <laughs> You've made that, that up. Mike Pollitt. <laughs> Mike Pollitt and Jawad Yami. Oh, Mike Pollitt, the, the uh, Wigan keeper. Yes. And, okay. Yeah. Uh, so that's. I think that's probably that's stronger than mine, and, and that's with only 25% chance. Of... Uh, Christmas Day? Okay. No. We've got Chris Kamara, Jarzinho. Oh, nice. Gary McAllister. Mm. Joel Porter, ex-Hartlepool United striker. Okay. That, I don't recognise any more names. If you like that kind of thing, listener, the internet. Uh, now, Aklak Hanif says, flip reverse episode three, please. All right, Aklak. There we go. Just one person <laughs> back, back in your... Act like Hanif, Hanif is an anagram for Jack Lang, of course. And Jack, it's your turn as the uh, Blazers Squad make their way out of the studio. Thanks, boys. To uh, to take us back to some event that you want to see reversed from the annals of football. What are you going to do, Jack? Well, I'm going to stay on brand, James, okay. and pick a Brazil game. Uh-huh. Setting the dial. Going to pick a World Cup final. Right. So people now are probably thinking about 1950, or if they don't remember, it was, it was a World Cup final, 1982, right. which wasn't a final. But I'm going to go for 1994, Brazil oh, against Italy, against which is a final that, of course, Pasadena. Brazil won. But you, want, you, you don't want them to win? No, I don't. Roberto Baggio, the saviour of Italy throughout this tournament. He's missed it, and Brazil win the World Cup. I think this was a, a negative sliding doors moment for Brazilian football. Oh, right. I think it would have got better if they lost, yes, because this was the the confirmation of a a pragmatic idea of football. Right. A bureaucratic idea of football. You, you've got Carlos Alberto Pereira, the manager, his famous quote around this time, magic and dreams are dead in football. Right. And so, of course they died. You mentioned it back in 82. Exactly. So and this was the the match then that confirmed that that kind of hideous bureaucratic uh, approach. To... I think so because they they ground their way all the way to the final. Obviously, mm. Romario is the player you look at and think, well, that's someone who deserves to have won a World Cup. Fair enough, but he was really doing a lot of it single-handedly. There was no real inspiration, none of the flair we associate with the Brazil teams that had preceded this time. Uh, and then because of that. Brazilians call it jogo de resultados, results football. Because that paid off here, there has been a 
a tendency in the national team especially to go back to that kind of model whenever there's been a bit of a, a crisis or a moment of transition. Right. So you look at Pajera came back as manager uh-huh. uh, in the early 2000s pointlessly. And Dunga, I suppose the whole Dunga school, school of football. Exactly right. Dunga, obviously this makes his name and he deserves credit for you know a, a technically limited player pushing himself, pushing himself to limits of his ability and achieving this World Cup. Uh, but this really made him a, a prominent figure in Brazilian football that maybe they could have done without as a manager. Right. He, like Bahia, it wasn't enough for Brazil to make the mistake of appointing him once; they appointed him twice. Right. Uh, Luis Felipe Scolari, who at least, of course, you know, is a World Cup winner, he has that in his favour, two thousand and two. But he also was brought back for a second spell. So you've got all these moments at which Brazil could have decided to plunge into the modern era, but they always go back to the slightly nostalgic pragmatic uh, model of football right. and a good example of this if if we're looking for butterfly effect yeah. is 2012-13 when Pep Guardiola was without a job and there were rumours linking him uh, to the Brazil job really? always mm. been a fan of Brazil Daniel Alves who knows him very well suggested a few years later oh, actually Guardiola was really up for it at that time Brazil perhaps slightly national, nationalistically in that they didn't want a foreigner to... They didn't want to admit that their own game needed foreign influence, essentially. Uh, snubbed him, turned their noses up. He obviously went off to do various other great things for Bayern and for Manchester City. Brazil got Scolari again, got Dunga again, uh, and are really only now, you know, Chichi isn't... Guardiola by any means, but right. You could so argue by sacrificing that, that World Cup, you restored a whole kind of philosophy to the Brazilian game. But by the same token, if you go back to that final in '94, was it Baresi's not going to miss his penalty? Badjo maybe is not going to sky his shot. That would be nice, I think. I would Which not. the Italians were always convinced was was Macumba was 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 people you know doing weird stuff behind the goal, Brazilian fans and that, but you'd have the the hideous spectre of Arrigo Saki returning to Italy as a World Cup winner. Which, I mean, I think half the country would have emigrated. Seriously, this—he was the most reviled man. Worth it for Baggio, surely. Yeah, I so think he felt that defined him, didn't he? Yeah, I, I, I will pay that price, James. Yeah, I think for Bobby to get his it, it, a semi-interesting stat—that's the only time in any major international tournament like that that um, either the penalty has been missed to finish it. So it's kind of, he is the one of like, oh, I think the Copper America, European Championship and World Cup, if there's been a win on penalties, it's been a penalty scored rather than missed. So he's the only kind of, he said he felt like the only, he still feels like the only loser because his was a miss to end the game. Right. Well, of course, they wouldn't have been there without him. No. Uh, there you go. Fantastic, Jack. Uh, before we go any further then, let's get some odds on the last of the international fixtures and more. Producer Ben's been speaking to Paddy Power. Greetings all, I'm on the line with Lee Price from Paddy Power. As usual, Lee, I was at Wembley to see that 5-0. Um, are England going to win one or both of the Nations League and Euro 2020? They're looking pretty special at the moment. OK, I'm going to take a deep breath before I say this and just double-check I read my notes right. Yep, England are the favourites in the Nations League. All right, joint favourites. Host Portugal and Gareth Southgate's clan of wonder children are 15-8 to win the first ever Nations League finals this summer. Holland looking value at 3-1 to and Switzerland outsiders at 6-1. to As for Euro 2020, the odds say that England are the fourth best side in the tournament again. 
World Cup winners France are the favourites, obviously, at 4-1. to one. Spain and Germany are joint second in the betting at 6-1. to one. And then it's England at 7-1, to one, narrowly ahead of Belgium, who are 15-2. to two. We talked about, shall we say, a tricky few days for Scotland in international football. Is Alex McLeish going to be around in the autumn? Yeah, he's simply Scott to go, according to my Scottish relatives. If the Kazakhstan mauling was humiliating, the narrow win over San Marino wasn't much better. And perhaps unsurprisingly then, the odds on McLeish going before June's meeting of Cyprus have shortened dramatically. They're now just 9-4, to but he gets axed before the next game. However, I will say this, they are technically joint second in the group and are guaranteed at least a playoff place thanks to the Nations League. It's not all doom and gloom for Scotland, honestly. And finally, many congratulations to Burundi for making it to the Africa Cup of Nations. Give us the numbers, please, on Saido Berahino to be top scorer. I'm not sure I'm having this, but I guess his Burundi team did wipe out a likely golden boot rival in Abemiang. But I'm still not convinced, nor are the traders. It's 28-1 to that Saido top scores at the AFCON. No chance, surely. You can find out these odds and more at paddypower.com. All prices are accurate at the time of recording. It's 18 plus only. Begambleaware.org. And when the fun stops, stop. Uh, Thursday's Totally Football Show will see the return of Duncan Alexander alongside Emma Saunders and Matt Davis Adams. A lineup almost as eclectic as your birthday five aside team, Daniel. Indeed. Uh, what are you looking forward to this week? Looking forward to watching England on Monday evening. All right then. Can I give you a quick fact? Montenegro, England's opponents this evening, are not members of the EU, but they use the Euro. That's a curious anomaly. Mm. And the only other country who does that, I believe, is Kosovo, who, of course, are also in England's group. Look at that. Remarkable. Remarkable. Jack? Yep. All right, then. <laughs> we'll see you soon, listener. Have a great time. Catch you on Thursday. You've been listening to The Totally Football Show, a Muddy Knees Media production. For sales and advertising, email sales at muddykneesmedia.com and don't forget to check out our other football podcasts on Spotify, Apple Podcasts and everywhere else you get your audio on demand. Supporting your team can be a beautiful thing, but then come the injuries, the goal droughts and the downright disastrous defeats. That's a little bit like life, really. And here at the Totally Football Show, we believe we should all support each other the way we support our team, through the good days and the bad. And that's why we're continuing to work with Calm, the campaign against living miserably, a charity dedicated to preventing male suicide. On average, 12 men take their own life every day in the UK. So that's your starting 11 and your manager every single day. And part of the problem is that many of us still feel uncomfortable talking about mental health and suicide, and this can often stop men from opening up and getting support when they need it the most. So if you're worried that someone close to you is having a tough time, check in with them and let them know that Calm is there. Every day from 5pm till midnight, Calm provide a free, confidential and anonymous helpline and web chat for any man who needs support. Visit thecalmzone.net to find out more about Calm.